0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 11th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The war on drugs is a failure, and the United States and drug-producing countries have paid a dear price for that failure. Author Don Winslow discussed his research into the damage done by the war on drugs at the Cato Institute Benefactor Summit in Las Vegas last month. The so-called war on drugs has been going on for now. We are in our fifth, fifth Decade when you ask the average American. What is the longest war in our history? They will typically immediately answer Vietnam. They will immediately they amend it to say Afghanistan Neither of those sadly is true the longest war in our history is a war on ourselves It is the war on drugs. It has been going on officially since 1974 even that's a bit of a misnomer we find laws against drugs going back to 1909 But since the official, Richard Nixon's official declaration of the war on drugs, we have spent over one trillion dollars. One trillion dollars. And for what? We should have known better. We had a test case that was called Prohibition. In the 1920s and 30s, we outlawed alcohol. And what was the result? We created a gigantic national crime syndicate, generally speaking known as the Mafia, and alcohol became more popular than ever, and we created criminals out of what would otherwise have been law-abiding citizens. We did not learn. We have now done the same thing, especially in our relation to Mexico. Now, if you go up to the mountains of Sinaloa, Many of you have heard the name Sinaloa lately in regard to the unlamented Joaquin Guzman. If you go up to those mountains where they grow opium, you will see narrow-gauge railway tracks. And those narrow-gauge railway tracks were built by the American government for a very good reason. In the 1940s, during World War II, we had a desperate need of opium for morphine for wounded soldiers and sailors in the Pacific. We could no longer get it in Afghanistan because of the war there. We could no longer get it in Southeast Asia because of the Japanese Empire having taken that over. Our only source was in Mexico. And so we encouraged the people of Sinaloa. We went down there as a government and we said, please, please, please grow more opium. We will help you. We will buy and build railroads for you. And the original great shipments of opium-based drugs that came into the United States came in with the complete encouragement and cooperation of the United States government. Again, for very, very good and noble cause. World War II ended. We decided we had a drug problem in America, particularly in the cities in the North. And we went back down to Mexico, and we said, please, please, please stop growing that nasty opium. Well, by that time, the economy of this area was entirely based on opium production. They didn't know what to do. The American mafia did. They went down to Mexico. Bugsy Siegel, in fact, was the individual that went to Sinaloa and said, we'll buy all the opium that you can make and ship it up into America, and we have been at war against that drug ever since. Now, I'm not a criminologist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a lawyer. God help me, I am not a politician. I'm a novelist, as as Peter has told you, but I have spent now coming on 20 years on the front line in the so-called war on drugs. I have sat down with addicts, with traffickers, with murderers, with the families of people who have lost folks to drug violence and to drug overdoses. I've been to the funerals. I've been to the prisons. I've talked with cops. I currently serve as a consultant to five or six American police departments. And I'm here to tell you tonight, if you take nothing else away from this talk, that the war on drugs is a failure. It is a catastrophe Is it a disaster? It has been a disaster for the people of Mexico. In the last 10 years, 10 years, over 100,000 people in Mexico have been killed in drug-related violence. 100,000. Another 22,000 are declared missing and those people are not coming back. And what is the reason? And I've said this over and over and over again. The Mexican drug problem is not the Mexican drug problem. It is the American drug problem. We are the buyers. We fund the violence. We send billions of dollars to the Mexican cartels every year. It is the American drug problem. It's very easy. I do it myself. I'm guilty of it of pointing a finger at Mexico, at Mexican corruption, of which we have seen fantastic examples recently. We can talk about that during the Q&A if you want to talk about Mr. Guzman. But if I were Mexican, I would look north across that border. I would look to the United States and I would ask, what is the corruption of your collective national soul, and I believe in such a thing, that makes you, the world's largest drug consumer. You know, we in the United States, we make up 5% of the world's population. We consume 25% of the world's illicit drugs. But that's only half of the problem. We send billions of dollars to Mexico to buy heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, and marijuana at the same time that we spend billions of dollars trying to interdict it. It is the schizophrenia of our policy toward drugs that causes the violence. and let's take a look at it. If this bottle of water, ladies and gentlemen, costs 33 cents on this side of the lectern, but $33 on this side of the lectern, I am going to put it to you that the product is not the bottle. doesn't matter what this is. The product, the profit is in the ability to move it from here to here. And what's in between? The border, which we are going to discuss. The border. Because it's illegal here. Because we spend billions of dollars. We are budgeted for 26 billion. Carl Sagan B billion dollars this coming year. In the effort to keep this... From going here to here. And where do the profits go? To the Mexican cartels. Because they are not paradoxically, the drug cartels are not paradoxically in the drug business, they're in the territory business. The border is the product. They are in the influence business, the intimidation business, the political business, the murder business, because they control this area. And over 100,000 people have been killed in that effort to maintain control over this area. And what is it that makes this area so valuable? The American appetite for and simultaneous prohibition of drugs. There's been a lot of talk lately. Thursday night, I heard a lot of talk about a wall. I'm going to build a beautiful wall. An amazing beautiful wall, a huge beautiful wall. Over 2,000 miles of our land, border of Mexico. Now, I've been to that border, walked that border. I've been in on horseback, in car. I've been with the Border Patrol, the DEA, and yes, traffickers. And I can tell you that that is some of the most rugged country in the United States and if you've ever driven along that border and not just visited with a coterie of press uh, and security guards, you will know the difficulty, sheer physical difficulty of building that wall. But let's say we get it built. Build it 10 feet higher. Build it 10 feet lower, build it 10 feet wider, I don't care. Build the Great Wall of China on the Mexican border. You will have the same problem as you did with the Great Wall of China, which never stopped anybody. (laughs) Anytime China was successfully invaded, it was from the north, through that wall, and there's a reason for that. Because it has gates. It has gates. The gates have names. The names are San Diego, El Paso, and Laredo, three of the busiest commercial border crossings in the world. Seventy-five percent of the illicit drugs that come into America come in by truck through those three gates. And there's no way you can stop even a fraction of those tractor-trailer trucks to inspect them, because you would effectively shut down commerce. The DEA says it intercepts about 15,15% of illicit drugs coming through the border. I think that's optimistic, but say it's real. The Mexican cartels, in their business plan, I assume there are business people in the room tonight, in their business plan, count on losing 30%. Now, what business do you know that can plan from the outset to lose 30% of its product and still make vast profits? Trucks. And that's it. Because, again, a product costs pennies here and hundreds of dollars here. I can give you the exact numbers if you'd like. I've heard talk recently, not only are we going to build a beautiful, amazing wall, We are going to make the Mexicans pay for it. Former president of Mexico had a rather vivid response to that. Don't worry, Peter, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Mr. Trump is missing the main chance. I know hundreds of Mexicans who'd pay for that wall. Do you know who they are? The cartels would love to pay for that wall. I'm surprised they haven't built the damn thing already because all that wall will do is increase their profits, because now they can charge drug traffickers more to get the bottle of water from here to there. Now it has to go way up here and apparently down and over the top. It is what Aristophanes would have called cloud cuckoo land. Makes me crazy. I apologize if I start yelling, but I get nuts. I feel like Louis Black talking about this without the obscenity. But let's talk now not about Mexico, but about our own country, the United States. What harm has this war on drugs done to us? Well, $1 trillion, that's a lot of harm. But let's talk about the real human costs of the war on drugs. The United States, our beloved country, The home of the brave has become the land of the imprisoned. We have now in our jails and prisons 2.3 million people, the largest prison population in the history of the world. Again, we make up 5% of the world's population, but have 25% of the world's incarcerated people. And This is not coincidental to the identical figures about drugs. Well over half of those people in prison are in prison on drug or drug-related charges. You know, we had a crack epidemic in the 1990s. It was without doubt devastating. By the way, let me put in my disclaimer right now. I don't do drugs. I don't do marijuana. I don't do anything. I'm a caffeine addict, I will admit to that. Coffee addict. I think drugs are a bad thing. But in 1990s, we had a crack epidemic, and we reacted to that epidemic with draconian laws that included sentencing, mandatory sentencing. That is, we took discretion out of the hands of judges, who knew their local communities. And we had federal laws that demanded 15 to 30 years to life at times for possession of certain of these drugs. And we filled our prisons up. And one of the saddest things that I know right now is that one of the few growth industries in our country is prison construction. Towns that used to compete for factories, now compete for prisons. They compete for jobs as guards to guard their fellow citizens. 2.3 million people in prison. This has fallen largely on our minority communities. African-Americans, for instance, make up about 13% of the population. They use about 13% of the country's illicit drugs. Exactly parallel to what you would expect it to be, but they make up 37% of people imprisoned for drug offenses. When you put a person in jail, you not only put that person in jail, you put an entire family in jail. What happens to the wives, the husbands, the kids who are left behind? I can tell you what happens. Thousands, tens of thousands of those children go into foster care every year. It is a human disaster. And when that person, if that person comes out of prison, that person cannot get help with housing, cannot get help with education, what's left? Do you think they might go back to doing what put them in prison in the first place? Doing drugs? It has had an enormously devastating effect on our society. Look at the militarization of our police. And by the way, the phrase militarization of our police, I didn't make that up. You know who told me that phrase? Police. Police came to me absolutely unbidden. Can I have coffee with you tomorrow morning? Absolutely. You know what I'm worried about, Don? What's that? The militarization of my police department. (laughs) I had a police chief once tell me that his funding for community policing which works, by the way, was cut in half. And do you know what he was given instead by the federal government? Tanks. Tanks. In the United States of America, tanks to be used against our own citizens. Tanks to send against who? The Bloods, the Crips? Some 19-year-old kid with no education selling a dime bag on the corner. Tanks? Every year, the number of paramilitary raids goes up. What are known as no-knock warrants. No-knock warrants. There's another sad phrase. Where you know what happens, a paramilitary unit rolls up to somebody's door, they have a device called a rabbit or a battering ram, boom, they go in. Sometimes they throw tear gas or flashbang grenades. It is a military assault. It started with a few hundred in the 1970s. You know how many there were last year? 800,000. Let's think of the logic of this for a moment, my friends. If these raids were working, there'd be fewer of them, not more. Am I correct? If we were seizing drugs and shutting down drug pushers and doing some good, we'd watch that number steadily go down, not explode. When we look at the events in Ferguson, in Cleveland, in New York, in Baltimore, The riots that are following the shootings of young men. We can trace this hostility between the police and minority communities directly to the war on drugs because that's where it started. And that's where it continues. I sound anti-cop up here. I am not anti-cop. I spend a lot of time with cops. I probably talk to cops every day. You know what they tell me? they'd like to go back to doing real police work. In some of our jurisdictions in this country right now, 40% of murders and 60% of rapes go unsolved. While we're busy playing coyote and sheepdog games on the border, doing endless paramilitary raids in the inner city, putting more and more and more of our citizens in jail in a revolving door that does no good. What's the result of our 50 years of war? Of our trillion dollars? Of our 2.3 million citizens in jail? Of our 2.7 million children who have one or more parent in jail on a nonviolent drug charge? What's the result? What have we gotten for it? Well, drugs are more plentiful, cheaper. And more potent than they've ever been. 2015, we had more deaths by overdose from heroin than we have had in our entire history. This does not sound like winning to me. This sounds like losing in the tragedy, and it is a tragedy. You know, I heard uh, one of these guys the other night, loudly proclaiming from the stage, I will not let young men, I will not let people, Americans, die on the sidewalk. I almost attacked the television set. So I had recently spoken with a mother whose son had died walking to a treatment center. He'd taken his last heroin shot that morning. He'd been on a waiting list to get a bed in a treatment center and died of an overdose on the sidewalk, walking to the treatment center. And that's a tragedy. And that tragedy is repeated day after day, night after night in this country. And it is because of our policy on drugs. It is because of the prohibition. The Cato Institute tells us that if we were to stop trying to interdict drugs, we would save $41 billion a year. $41 billion. It further tells us that if we were to tax those drugs at the same rate that we tax alcohol and tobacco, which are by far the greatest killers far the greatest killers, those two legal drugs, we would gain an additional $46 billion in revenue. What could we do with that kind of money? Understand this is a sort of old-school liberal idea. But we might try to address the root causes of drug addiction and drug use. We might build a few businesses in the inner city We might have more money for treatment so that addicts who want help don't die on the sidewalk waiting to get it. 87% of the inmates who go into the Las Vegas jail down the street here, check the numbers today, by the way, test positive for illicit drugs. 87%. And this is not, you know, unusual. Similar figures all over the country. What does this mean? It means that our jails have become our de facto non-treatment centers and mental hospitals. Chiefs of police tell me I've got these people for 30, 60, 90, 120 days, and those are wasted days. I know I'm going to send them back on the street and I'm going to see them again in two weeks because we did nothing to help them during that time. We know that for every dollar we spend in prison on education of an inmate, we will save $5 in reduced recidivist costs. I'd make that deal every day. I'm not an economist. I'm not even a good businessman. I can't balance my checkbook, but I would make that deal but we don't do it because our politicians are afraid to discuss this topic in any real and honest kind of way. I'm sorry. I realize I'm getting preachy. I I, I get passionate. I get crazy about this topic. We are killing ourselves. We are killing our own liberties. The thought this morning, getting ready to come here uh, from San Diego, and I, I got thinking about for some reason, Samuel Adams, not the beer, the, the, the guy. Peter. So I got thinking, you know, what would have happened in Boston in the 1770s if paramilitary force came and broke down doors, and arbitrarily arrested people to confiscate what they had deemed to be an illegal substance? owned by private citizens in their homes? Well, I know the answer. It would have been a revolution. And it was a revolution that I thought said to the world, our homes are our homes, our bodies are our bodies, our minds are our minds, our souls are our souls, and you can't tell us otherwise. And yet the federal government gives police departments tanks that they can't use and don't want. Again, I'm not an advocate of drug use. I get into, how am I doing for time there, Jenna? Okay. I get into arguments with a lot of my younger readers about this because I'm very much against the use of recreational drugs. Given our current laws. Now I have some libertarian thinking about this. I don't think government has any business telling adults what they can consume, what they can put in their bodies. It's none of their business and it shouldn't be. But I'm against the use of recreational drugs given the laws as they exist today because we don't know where they came from. I tell young people, you know, it amazes me, I see them go out to demonstrations. They'll demonstrate in front of a grocery store chain over free trade coffee. Or that chicken didn't have sufficient acreage to lay an egg happily. And they'll leave that demonstration, I've seen it. They'll leave that demonstration and go home and smoke a joint that was brought to them by murderers and rapists and torturers in Mexico. Makes me insane. It makes me crazy. But you know what? When three states, three, believe there are 50, When three states legalized marijuana, you know what happened in Mexico? This is not my figures. This is the DEA's figures. Imports from Mexico of marijuana from the cartels dropped by 40%. 40%. Let's push this point a little further, if I may. By stopping fighting the war on drugs in three states, we succeeded in doing something we never succeeded in doing in 50 years of fighting it. The Sinaloa cartel won't even grow Mara anymore. They they can't give it away. They can't compete with local prices and quality and transportation costs. The only answer is legalization of all drugs across the board. The legalization of marijuana. You can applaud, sir. I'm just happy if you applauded. Thank you. It was my Jeb Bush moment. It had to happen. (laughs) It's not good enough just to legalize marijuana. I've referred to that as the bill to keep young white kids out of jail. We have to legalize heroin, we have to legalize methamphetamine, and we have to legalize cocaine. And I know how unpleasant that sounds. But again, the cartels make their profit from the prohibition. We are not able to treat people with serious drug problems because of the prohibition. The prohibition must end. I want to move to a little bit more upbeat moment. I realize I'm, I think, the last speaker here. There are grounds for optimism. There are grounds for optimism. I've been um, speaking about this now for about five months. I've been on a very long book tour. So I've been to many cities in America, not a few in Europe. And there's a groundswell of public opinion out there that is starting to see this the same way. You know, I have not been to a city, I've not made a single public appearance at a bookstore, an event like this, anywhere in the United States, not once, where someone hasn't come up to me who has lost a loved one to a drug overdose or to violence from the cartels. Not one. It breaks my heart. But there's reason for optimism, and there's reason for optimism because of people like you and events like this. There's a conversation now finally happening in America that hasn't happened before. And I hope that you go home from this weekend and take this weekend with you. I hope that for a change, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. And then instead it goes out to Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, and Miami, and Austin, Texas, and wherever you're all from. You know, I think that, I think, I believe that one of the themes of this weekend, although I just got here, is about activism. What can we do as individuals? What can we do as people? And so often we feel so helpless as individuals. But we are not helpless. What you can do, what we can do, is go out and have this conversation at lunches, at dinners, at cocktail parties, on the bus, wherever you are. Talk about this. Talk about these statistics. Come out and stand for liberty in this country, and let's say we are not going to lock up millions and millions of our citizens. We are not going to prohibit this drug. We are not going to spend billions of our dollars on this wasteful activity, and we are going to use our resources to give treatment to the people who need that treatment. I think it's happening. I think we'll see it soon. Thank you for letting me harangue you. It's been a pleasure for me, and uh, have a good night, and God bless you all. Don Winslow is author of The Cartel and other books. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in Las Vegas in February. You can learn more about sponsorship opportunities at the Cato Institute. Visit our website, cato.org.